name of Christ, and welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We have a simple goal here on Concord Matters, to seek unity in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the Apostle Paul says it well, that unity is possible by the Holy Spirit, by God's Word. He says this in Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We seek this harmony by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. Because you see the book of Concord is not another Bible of course. But we believe, teach, and confess unconditionally, by the way, that these writings are in accord with the Holy Scriptures, which are only source and hope, which is why we gather together today to confess that truth. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We continue our study in the Augsburg Confession, and today we come to Article 17, Christ's Return for Judgment. Now, this is something that when you actually get down to it, you would have a lot of various views when it comes to not necessarily will Christ come. The question is when, how, and what does this all mean? So today we're going to make sure we stick close to the scriptures, that we confess boldly what the scriptures say, and we don't confess what the scripture does not say. So stick with us as we continue to confess the truth. So open up your Bibles, open up your Book of Concord, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Augsburg Confession, really from the beginning until now, the first 17 articles of it, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back Pastor Dennis McFadden of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor McFadden, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be with you. So, Pastor, as we look at the subject, um, it could get pretty testy pretty quickly. So let's, let me ask you this question to begin. Christ's return for judgment. What is the most important thing or things um, that we should remember when we confess this article of the Augsburg Confession? Well, over a hundred years ago, a professor at St. Louis Seminary put it this way. He said, the most important thing to understand about the purpose of the second coming is the resurrection of all the dead, the final judgment, and the consummation of all things. When I talk to uh, middle schoolers about the second coming, I tell them the thing you need to understand is Jesus is coming to raise the dead, to judge the nations, and make all things new. And if you understand that, you got the book of Revelation in a nutshell. Well, then maybe we're done. Um, <laughs> let's just shower up now. No, but but it is it is important for us to begin with that premise or that hermeneutic hermeneutical center of when we look at this subject because it goes something like this you meet somebody that's a christian you give thanks for your common confession that the blood of jesus saves or you go to like a, a, a you watch something on youtube um you're like wow this is great these are christian people and they are um and then all of a sudden they'll say something like and jesus will come um in, in a way that we'll not be able to see and then there will be a rapture and you're like, well, wait, wait, what just happened here? Like, this is, this is different than I remember. Like, what, what is happening? And then they start talking about end times, and they start talking about Left Behind series and all this, and it can be very confusing. So I would encourage you, our listeners, to once again 
uh, make sure that you are confident in what we believe, teach, and confess, which is why I encourage you to look at this article for the source of hope and also for the source of being able to speak the truth Maybe run around the, 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 um, the fire in the summertime, you know, like we have here in Minnesota. Or you're talking to Christian friends who we will say, yes, we're together. But at the same time, we might be some disagreement on this subject. So keep that in mind as we look at Christ's return for judgment. Pastor, anything else you want to encourage our listeners before we start digging in? Just that I think our view is, is not only uh, so much easier to understand, it's so much more comforting. Because it puts the emphasis on exactly the right spot. It, it reminds us that the second coming of Christ is about Jesus coming again to complete all that he intended from the very beginning, to bring justice to the earth, to eliminate evil, and I like the way one Lutheran puts it, uh, to inaugurate Eden 2.0. Oh, that's very good. I would encourage you, our listeners, to write that down, to inaugurate Eden 2.0. Very good. So let's dig in. We are in the, the reader's edition of the book of Concord, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, page 40, Article 17, Christ's Return for Judgment. Now let's, uh, let's do this. I'm going to read the note, and then I'm going to read the first three sections of this article. So join with me as we begin to confess. This article, Article 17, affirms the biblical view of the end times. It pointedly rejects any speculation or opinion about believers ruling the world before the, one, the final resurrection of the dead. It also rejects all theories about a millennial earthly rule of Christ as contrary to God's word. We begin with the confession. Our churches teach that at the end of the world, Christ will appear for judgment and will raise all the dead. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. He will give the godly and elect eternal life and everlasting joys, but he will condemn ungodly people and the devils to be tormented without end. Pastor, during the, these first three, three uh, numbers of this article, it keeps it very simple. Well, let's break that down. How do you want to start? Well, it, it, the whole point is, uh, I think if we're going to stick with Paul, I prefer to put the the resurrection of the dead first. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there is no resurrection, we are among all people most to be pitied. And I think the great hope of the believer, is, especially as we look at the craziness of the world we live in, is that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set things right. And that begins with uh, raising the dead. Uh, and then it proceeds to judging the world and uh, that's what our article you know, states pretty clearly using 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 25. I want to do this this morning because, well, I want to start with this. When I, when I went to my, my first congregation, uh, beloved saints of that congregation, I had a, just a lovely, wonderful Christian man invite me to his house. And you really kind of assume that we had the same view of the end times. And he went down, and we just were talking, had a nice conversation, and within no time, all of a sudden, it was very obvious that we had a different view of what this all would be. Once again, a biblical man, a Christian man, believed in only the blood of Christ to save him from his sins, confession of the Trinity, the creeds, all these things, but boy, he had a whole different view. And the problem for me was 
that yes, I had been trained at the seminary, um, but he was using the same passages that I would argue go somewhere else. <laughs> and so it was quite the challenge and very important for us to be able to uh, see the distinctiveness of how we will confess this today. So I do encourage you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that Pastor has mentioned, and I want to read that this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul's words to the Thessalonians. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do not ha- who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry command, with the whole voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I love how Paul ends at least chapter 4 by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He does not say, therefore, scare each other with these words, which sometimes tends to happen. Pastor, as you hear these words, and as you've already mentioned to us, um, what, what's going to happen? I mean, can you give us a little more of a, what Scripture tells us about what's going to happen when Jesus returns? Yeah, the picture, the picture we get in, in 1 Thessalonians, and realize Paul is writing to a group of people that have decided that the second coming is going to happen any minute. And so they're selling their houses, they're selling their businesses, they're camping out on the hillside waiting for Jesus to come again. And Paul is reminding them that that's, that's, that's not an informed scriptural view. That's a, that's a kind of an enthusiastic view of scripture. And we need to look at what God says, not what seems good to us, and realize that when Jesus comes again, uh, some of us will have died in the Lord. And I think every one of us have family members who've passed away. We grieve their passing. We look forward to re- being reunited with them again. And many of the people we love, Uh, Many of the people who came before us have already gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, Jesus is going to return with them, and we are going to meet him in the air. That word for meet there in the original is a word for leave a city. It's a technical term for leaving a city to meet a king and then escorting the king back into town. And we are going to be part of that great company uh, that returns for the final judgment when Uh, Jesus will uh, proceed to uh, judge the nations, and as Peter tells us, he will uh, remake the the cosmos, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and it'll be, uh, as I said before, Eden 2.0. Everything that Eden promised will be returned in reality, in fullness. And it speaks a, a language that we have to be very clear. So it's obvious that Jesus will come again. And it seems very clear to me and here and other parts of uh, especially Matthew. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, it seems to me as we read this in other places that this is not going to be a, a question like, well, I'm not sure. Is this the time? I'm not so sure if this is the time. It seems like it's going to be 
very well known by everybody, which is hard for me to comprehend, but yet it, it seems like that's how Scripture speaks. Is that how Scripture speaks? It, it does. And I love, I love the satirical uh, video done by Hans Feeney where he mm. said, if given a choice of arguing that Jesus is going to come in secret and secret away uh, Christians in the dead of night, or a view that says he's going to do what he said he's going to do, I elect to choose the one that doesn't make my Lord out to be an imbecile and a liar. Because the scripture is pretty clear that everybody is going to see it. Everybody's going to know. There's no secret rapture. It's a, it's a very public coming again of the Lord to earth. And it says this very clearly also in Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus says. So it's very clear that, that those wordings are there. So it's hard for me to comprehend, though. I will say this. It's kind of like, you know, if something happens here in Minnesota, that it, at the same time, you don't notice it in Fort Wayne, as far no. as I can tell, right? Not and often. So then how in the world does that happen in China? I mean, it's crazy to even think about it is it is difficult to comprehend through our normal our normal way of thinking, but the fact that God can uh, announce so that the entire world hears at once, uh, I'll leave that that, that that the logistics of that are above my pay grade. Amen to that. So as we look at what's going to happen, so Jesus returns. There'll be angels, the sound of the trumpet, but that will. It's not only that Jesus is back and it's like, hey, this is great. You know, this is the day of judgment, you know, the eschaton. Um, the day of judgment is day of the here. Lord. So, day of the Lord. Yeah, the day of the Lord. So what is going to happen as we hear from Matthew 25 and other parts of Scripture? Well, according to Matthew, uh, in, in Matthew 24, you get that wonderful section that we call the Olivet Discourse because Jesus delivered it on the Mount of Olives. The, the disciples had gone with Jesus into the city uh, and on Tuesday of Holy Week, uh, they're walking through the temple precincts, and these these Galilean hicks are marveling at the at the magnificence of this temple, and saying, "Can you imagine anything better than this?" And Jesus says, "You know, uh, waxes spiritual by saying, you know, I I will tear down this temple and and raise it up again in three days,' referring to himself, and that gets them thinking. So they get a, they get across the Kidron Valley that night. And they say, okay, explain this to us. I don't understand. And so in Mark 13 and in Luke 21 and Matthew 24, Jesus lays out an answer to basically two kinds of questions. What's going to happen to this building? And what are the signs of the end of the world, the end of the age? And as far as the building goes, he basically tells them it's going to get torn down. God is going to judge the nation of Israel for their rejection of the Messiah, and within this generation, this very building will will be laid waste, and not one stone will stand upon another. And that, you know, if, whether Jesus said that uh, uh, the end of March, the first of April in the year thirty, or in the, uh, or in the year thirty three, either way, uh, by the year seven, by August of, of seventy A.D. Rome fulfilled that prophecy and destroyed the entire temple. But as often is the case in the Bible, you've get, you get the near-term and the long-term in the same passage. So near-term, you've got the destruction of the temple. Long-term, 
you've got the signs of the end of the age and the prediction that leads into chapter 25 when it tells us what's going to happen when Jesus comes to separate the sheep and the goats and to uh, the, have that great white throne judgment. So tell us about that. Who are the sheep and who are the goats? The Well, it's, the, it's those who... Uh, we believe that Jesus died for everybody's sin of all time. So, you know, we call that objective justification or justification in terms of, of paying the price of sin. Jesus paid the price at Calvary for all the sins of all people for all time. But we receive that subjectively, personally. We, another way of saying it, instead of saying subjectively, we receive it personally by faith. When the Holy Spirit takes the word and creates faith in us and we respond reaching out and clinging to the promises of God, we, we respond in faith and that is what makes us Christians. So the, the division is not between good people and bad people or between people who did good deeds or bad deeds. It's not God grades on a curve and, and boy, I'm sure glad that I helped my neighbor last week because that'll give me a leg up at the second coming. No, it's it's who, who rejects and who receives the promise of God. Who, who has received and clings to that promise of salvation offered in Jesus Christ versus who stubbornly rejects that atonement made for them. And this is where Matthew 25 can get very tricky as far as you interpret it because you could easily see it and say, oh, well, the sheep are the ones who do good things. And the goats were the ones who did not good things. You know, they, uh, I was naked and you clothed me. Okay, there it is. Get a notch on there and I'm ready to go. But it's very clear the difference of the sheep and the goats, as you mentioned, is faith. That all these things were done in faith and those things were not done in a lack of faith. And, and that is, is very clear throughout scripture. It's very good for us to um, be able to make that distinction going from Abraham and, and throughout obviously the whole scripture. Um, but it is so amazing how Matthew 25 can be completely misinterpreted so that we always end up with the hope being upon ourselves. Yes. And that is a, that is a tendency throughout uh, end times, uh, Christ's return and judgment uh, theologies that we have. Pastor, what else do you want to highlight? Well, the, the other thing I was going to say is that, that really um, it, you mentioned that it can be tricky and kind of be confusing, but it wasn't viewed as tricky or confusing for 1800 years for 1800 years of the church's history pretty much everybody whether they called themselves roman catholic or called themselves reformed or called themselves lutheran whether they called themselves anglican or baptist or whatever for 1800 years pretty much everybody understood matthew 24 and 25 and the book of revelation saying something pretty straightforward jesus is going to come again He's going to raise the dead. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to make all things new. It wasn't until the 1830s that it started getting confusing for people. And any insight to how that happened? Sounds great before that time. <laughs> well, <laughs> the insight is in, in the 1830s, a, a gentleman came forth by the name of, of uh, Darby who argued rather rather strikingly that two things had to happen when you read the Bible. First, you had to separate Israel and the church every time the words are used. So anytime the word Israel is used, it refers to ethnic 
national Israel, and any time church is used, it refers to the New Testament Gentile church. And so it was, it was the, the pattern. Uh, he insisted that was one, one thing to, to think about. And then the other thing that John Nelson Darby argued was that you need to be absolutely literal in how you interpret prophecy. And that's tricky when you get a book like Revelation, because Revelation is a very symbolic book. It's got sevens run amok through the whole thing. It's got twelves running through it. It's got twelve times a thousand in 144,000. It just, all the way through the book, you've got these, these symbolic numbers. And if you read chapter 19 that talks about the return of Christ, and then you read chapter 20, it mentions this earthly thousand-year rule. And so that one passage, those five verses in Revelation 20, got turned into a, a, a lens through which the whole Bible got read. And people started forgetting that the New Testament treats prophecy as fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, not as a plan B, and God is going to return to plan A at the end of history and do something with, with ethnic Israel. And so if it says Israel in the Old Testament, it has to be Israel at the end of time. And uh, that, I think, is where things got confusing. And this is what's interesting about going back and to confess the confessions from the 16th century, that there are moments like this where we, they are not necessarily addressing the same situations as we are today. Now, most of the time, it just, it just comes back. Like it's the same, it's the same different people, but same situation. So clearly in these um, condemnations, which we're going to get to in the other side of our break, they don't have the same exact condemnations, but it is something that there's, it's related in so many ways, which is why we have to stay so, cling so closely to the simplistic what Scripture has to say. For exactly. example, Matthew 24, it says, you do not know the day or hour when he arrives. And Pastor, is that, is that, is that true? I mean, Jesus is telling us that we don't know when this is going to happen? I believe Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe the calendarizers. And it, you know, it's funny. Uh, th there's a lot of inconsistency uh, during the 1970s when there was a craze about prophet. I'm old enough to remember when there was a craze about biblical prophecy in the 70s, and and even before the Left Behind books, there was Hal Lindsey, and uh, he wrote a very very popular bestseller predicting uh, this, you know, elaborate, you know, multiple stage second coming where. Jesus comes to steal away this faithful in a secret rapture, and then seven years later he comes back again, and there's a thousand-year period of him ruling in Jerusalem, and the Constitution will be the, the Sermon on the Mount, and then at the end of that time there'll be a rebellion by Satan and his people against Jesus, and there'll be another battle, cataclysmic battle, all of this you know, really complicated stuff. And, and Lindsay at the time argued... That, that the rapture had to happen before 1980. And he was writing around 1970, and he was arguing that, that if it didn't happen before 1980, then the Bible was false. And I always found it interesting that all the money he made from that book, he put into long-term real estate investments, which presumably he didn't believe he'd be around to benefit from. 
but yeah, there's a lot of inconsistency and a lot of, uh, if you push the so-called literal view, which isn't that literal, and you push the idea that Israel and the church can never mean the same thing, contrary to what Paul says in Galatians, even the Israel of God referring to the church, you end up with some really crazy science fiction scenarios. And that's where a lot of these, these you know, left behind type views end up. And they, 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 they sow seeds of fear among God's people that need not be there because the scripture is given to comfort us. Jesus is coming again for us. He died for us. He's returning for us. And we shouldn't be viewing that as, as something out of a zombie movie. It ought to be something that's, that's positive and, and healthful and helpful. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, encourage one another with these words. Now, Pastor, before we get to our break, I do want you to break this down a little bit. You talked about there when people start making a distinction of Israel and the church, that things really get, they muddy the waters. Can you, can you break that down for us? What do you mean breaking, you know, separating Israel and the church and what Scripture says? Well, uh, for instance, in 2 Samuel 7, there's a, a, prophecy, there's a prophetic line about, or a promise by God, about the Davidic kingdom. And those who argue the left behind view say that hasn't happened, literally. Uh, there isn't a Davidic king ruling on earth today. And so they say there needs to be this millennial rule so that uh, Jesus can reign as the Davidic king on the throne and fulfill what, what 2 Samuel 7 was talking about. Uh, when uh, the New Testament tends to take the Old Testament prophecies through the lens of Jesus and see Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. And he's the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. They, some of those who argue the other view want to say that uh, God promised Abraham seed, sod, and security. But um, unt unt until the millennium, uh, Israel isn't going to have a secure land of its own again. And that's what led some of them to see the return of the nation-state of Israel in the 20th century as a, a precursor to the coming of Jesus again. That's why Hal Lindsey said you know, from the t you know, that, that Israel's return to the land set the time, uh, uh, the stopwatch running, and that there were, you know, a generation in, in biblical times was 40 years. So 40 years from the time of Israel's return to the land, that's when Jesus was going to return again. Well, obviously that was a misreading of scripture. We've gone quite a bit beyond, you know, the late 1970s, and Jesus has not returned yet. So that was a misreading of it. The New Testament sees the fulfillment of scripture in Jesus, and some want to see the fulfillment in, in uh, earthly history here and now before he comes back again. And that leads to confusion. One person put it that the, the interpretive key for somebody who would want to be looking to try to figure out the end times and, and also this understanding of working in history as opposed to Christ is you're interpreting the world, uh, your theology through the newspaper, just trying yep. to see if, if Moscow has something going on or Israel or India or whoever you want to include on the whole list. Are you interpreting it through the newspaper, or are you interpreting it through Christ? Which, to be very clear, we all need to be careful of that, because it can really, it can be so close to us looking at everything in an incorrect way. But right now, we need to look on this on the other side of our break. 
we are studying the end times according to scripture through the Augsburg Confession with Pastor Dennis McFadden, and we'll be right back. Many church workers always knew they wanted to serve in Christ's church, but for some, the passion to become a pastor, teacher, deaconess, or other full-time church worker came later in life. Leaving a career to pursue this life of service is not without challenges, yet these are sacred and joyous vocations unlike any other. Set apart to serve, the Church Work Recruitment Initiative of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate is here to help. Visit kfuo.org SAS to learn how you can put your experience and skills to work through full-time service in Christ's church. That's kfuo.org SAS. We are studying Article 7, 17 excuse me, of the Augsburg Confession, Christ's return for judgment, the end times, the eschaton, um, uh, not the Left Behind series, that's a whole different thing, but we're looking at when Christ returns with Pastor Dennis McFadden of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now, Pastor, we've, we've kind of spoken around this, and we want to make sure we're very clear that, that there are different views that we want to be able to address. But let's do this. Let's start with what the confessions say, and then we can talk about the different views that are out there today, as long as we fully understand what we have in Scripture. So let's, let's finish out the confession, which is on page 40, Article 17, Christ's Return for Judgment in the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord. And we are starting with number four. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists, who think that there will be an end to the punishment of condemned men and devils. Our churches also condemn those who are spreading certain Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall take possession of the kingdom of the world, the ungodly being everywhere suppressed. So these, you know, some of these, like I mentioned before, that often these are the kind of things that we don't encounter on a common basis, but they are definitely out there when you look into more of what theologies are out there. So any insights to number four when it talks about the Anabaptist, that there will be an end to the punishments of condemned men and devils? Just that, just that what has, has occurred in the, in, the, in the 20th century largely into the 19th and into the 20th and now into the 21st is something like uh, half the pastors in America take a different view of the second coming something like uh you know uh, nearly nearly 48 percent of all pastors in the united states would believe in in an idea that jesus is going to return and after that there will be a a thousand year period that culminates in a final re rebellion against god and uh, uh again that the biggest problem that that view has is it's kind of a redemptive historical U-turn from the way the New Testament talks that the, the focus of history is Jesus Christ, not some extra Christ uh, event in history that is disconnected from him. And if you follow this view that, that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom for a thousand years, uh, you've got a problem. You've got you've got these people. You read out of out of Thessalonians the the return of Christ with people in resurrected bodies, and presumably he's going to rule for a thousand years with these resurrected saints in resurrected bodies, and there are people who survive this great tribulation in mortal bodies 
We're going to be marrying and having children and growing old and their children are going to have children and their children's children are going to have children and they're going to be mixing with people in resurrection bodies so that, that you know, you might be living next door to your, your unsaved neighbor and one day you talk to the great, 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 great grandchild of your, your childhood friend and say, oh yeah, I knew your ancestor back when. Because your body doesn't age, and theirs do, so they go through a thousand years of, of, of begetting and growing old and dying, and you're in a resurrected body, and that's just bizarre. That is a bizarre view of the, the second coming of Jesus, and yet that is what that view requires, a belief that, that you're going to have this commingling of, of resurrected saints and people in natural bodies, and that you're and the second coming of Jesus, which the New Testament presents as a success, is going to ultimately give rise to a failure because there's going to be another rebellion against him, and the the unsaved people are going to join Satan and his hordes, and they're going to rise up against Jesus and try one last time to overthrow the kingdom of God, and that just isn't the idea you'd get from. Matthew through Jude, and it really isn't the idea you should get from Revelation. The picture we get is that that we're going to end the story with Jesus separating the sheep and the goats, and we're going to have a a remade uh, cosmos where he will reign and rule again in righteousness with his saints. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have a one day before the end rebellion. It Jesus comes back again to set things right, and they stay right. They don't unright themselves after a thousand years. Something that I had a very good insight from one of my members at my first congregation in Wisconsin was that he, in the past, had gotten very hyped up with, for example, the Left Behind series that came out in LaHaye and Jenkins, um, mainly in the 90s, I would say, early 2000s, maybe. Mm-hmm. And one of the what he said, he would listen to Christian radio, which was a great blessing to him. And what he struck him was one time he was listening and he was listening to a pastor speak about the end times. And he was going through everything that you're saying, the thousand year reign, going through the details of when Christ will return at that time, very much so thinking that the year 2000 was the end. You know, Y2K was just a cover up biblically for the end of the age of a rapture and and speaking about all of these things and 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 the member that i had he he said he could feel himself just getting so worked up because one he was confused two he was worried about being marked by satan um three he was just worried about everybody else who maybe doesn't believe this yeah and he said as he listened he got more and more you know just anxious and you know we should be anxious about the end times i'm not about to say that that we should not worry about our, our friends and family who do not believe in the Lord Jesus. This is, this is very serious and very troubling. But at the same time, as Paul says, encourage each other with these words. As he said, right after this pastor spoke, they brought on a Lutheran pastor, which I thought was kind of interesting. And he said, the guy spoke for about a minute and said, here, here's what's going to happen. Jesus is coming back with a physical body. He rose from the dead. He's, we're going to know he's there. He's going to judge the sheep and the goat, and then he's going to bring us home. Yep. And then he said, amen. And he, my, my, yeah. my member was very much so like, oh my gosh, I felt so much better, he said. Well, I think there's a tendency to want to read 
uh, symbols. I mean, we don't read poetry that way. When when we look at, at the Song of Solomon talking about idyllic beauty, uh, hair looking like a, a bunch of goats running down a hill and things like that, we don't we don't take that literally. We realize it's intended to be a, a poetic picture. And it's it's interesting that when you look at the the image John gives us in Revelation of the New Jerusalem, it's it's this gold cube, uh, basically fourteen hundred by fourteen hundred by fourteen hundred, and it descends onto the earth, and the and God dwells among His people, and it seems like a bizarre image till you remember that the temple in the Old Testament was a gold cube, thirty by thirty by thirty, mm-hmm. at where God dwelt on earth, and the and where atonement was done. And so what you have in Revelation is the fulfillment of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. The Old Testament had just, you know, models of, of eternity. And what you get at the end of Revelation is you get that, that, that gold cube New Jerusalem descending, and it's, it's meant to evoke the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's what it's supposed to make you think about, is the Holy of Holies and the fact that... that you know, we, we began in a garden and we end in a in in this new Jerusalem. God begins walking among his people in the cool of the day, and he ends with his people dwelling among him uh, forever and ever without end. And so the, the the picture is one of of tying up loose ends. And the whole book of Revelation is a story of of God tying up the loose ends and moving toward the consummation when Jesus will come again to make all things right. Well, and this is why when you're able to look through the lens of there's many things we just don't know. We're not trying to we're not trying to overinterpret all of scripture. I mean, and that that's tricky and that's why um, we should always be praying and and keeping keeping everything straight when it comes to what Jesus is and who Jesus is and how he is the center of all of this because then you're able to look at it with new eyes. But when you look at parts of Scripture, when it speaks about the new heaven and new earth, I mean, I tell you what, I can't wait till Jesus returns. I mean, this is unbelievable. Let's just, let's just, uh, let's just look at this, for example. Revelation 22, Jesus has returned. There's a new Jerusalem which, by the way, Revelation 21, 9 through 14 specifically, or even up through the rest of the chapter, is just a beautiful picture of what it will be like in the end, um, where all the saints will be around the Lamb of God. And, and, and it, unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. And be in perfection, as Pastor said so well, Eden 2.0. But Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing with the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves and the trees were healing with the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. ever. I mean, how can we not get more more excited and you know what this is a perfect picture as you've said so many times pastor eden 2.0 still yet to come the rest 
there's a lot of things we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know what the end will be like, and that is always our hope. So I, I'm getting all excited, and, and Lord, uh, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, and John reminds us when he writes that it has not yet been revealed what will be, but we know that when he comes, we will be like him. We will be with him. I mean, we don't know all the details, and I think that's part of the problem that some people the last 150 years have tried to fill in the, the, the unknowns by, by substituting ideas. I, I read all 12 or 13 of the Left Behind books. I mean, mm. I read all of them. I, I've gone through the whole thing. Rayford Steele, Chloe, Hattie Durham, I know them all. And I understand that mindset. I understand that way of interpreting Scripture. But I think it is sad to miss the glorious uh, promise of Scripture, which is so comforting to people, and substitute something which is that confusing. Uh, I've, been, I've been visiting uh, one of our parishioners who's nearing death with a very serious case of, of cancer right now, and he doesn't need to know about multi-headed beasts, and he doesn't need to be reminded of, of abysses and, and animals coming out of the abyss and all the rest of that. He needs to know that Jesus died for him, Jesus loves him, and Jesus promised that he would be with him forever. That's what he needs to hear. And that's the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is not intended to be a science fiction novel. It's intended to be a word of comfort. And remember, Revelation was written to Christians undergoing persecution. First Peter was written to Christians undergoing persecution. Mm. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about a time yet to come when there would be great persecution. And the message of the second coming is good news for bad times because it tells us that bad times are not forever, but God is. Mm. And he has the last word. As you look at today's uh, culture, there really are different uh, views of what we call the millennium. That's where we go to Revelation 20. And, and so there's a number of views. Uh, specifically, I'll name these, and Pastor, you uh, break these down more, because uh, as one of the great things about Pastor McFadden is he lived in the more evangelical world with wonderful Christian people, but definitely not on the same side of our confession of faith. And so we, <laughs> For 58 we years. <laughs> For 58 years, exactly. And, and so you have three major views that, that I've learned, and I want you to break these down for us, yeah. Pastor, is you have the all-millennial, you have the premillennial, and then you have the post-millennial. Those are very basic. Now, what we don't want to do is make it sound like, you know, you have your truth, we have your tr- you, you have your truth, and everything is just hunky-dory. That's not We want to make those distinctions for the sake of teaching, but also to make sure we're always centered on what Scripture has to say. So, Pastor, can you break down the different views that yeah. we have in let, our today's world? Let me be real simple. Up until the last couple hundred years, what we call amillennialism and postmillennialism were all the same thing. Mm. Uh, you, you You could differentiate it this way. Postmillennialists are optimistic amillennialists because they think that the world is getting better and better all the time. And as the gospel spreads around the world... People will accept the good news of the gospel. They'll become Christians, and the world will be Christianized. And and then when the world is is all Christianized, Jesus will come back again. That's the postmillennial view. And really, 
the the death knell to post-millennialism was World War One and World War Two, mm. because when people went through the trenches in Europe and the mustard gas, and went through the Holocaust of World War Two, and went through the atomic bomb, they had a hard time believing that the world was getting better and better. But post-millennialism was a view that essentially. Um, the world is in the process of improving, and it'll just keep on improving until until it gets pretty well Christianized, and then Jesus will come back. The amillennial view, which has been the predominant view among all Christians for, gee, since the time of Augustine, you get you have it before then, but it was was laid down pretty clearly in in the in the four, in the fifth century, and ever since then, it's the belief that Jesus ascended into heaven, as the creed tells us. He, uh, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again, and he sits uh, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and that he is reigning now. Uh, and what Revelation 20 talks about is the reign of Jesus now in heaven. Uh, and so Jesus is reigning from heaven now, and and at, at a point in history, he will leave his heavenly throne to return in triumph to earth, to raise the dead, to judge the nations, and make all things new. And at that point, uh, the church which has lived with tribulation and persecution for whatever amount of time since the ascension until the second coming, that period of tribulation and suffering will be, will be put behind and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's, that's the picture that amillennialism gives, and that's why it was the view of the Roman church, it was the view of the, of the Reformed church, of the Presbyterians, it was the view of the Methodists, the Baptists, as well as the Lutherans for, for most of church history. It wasn't until the 1800s that we had this push for... for what's called dispensational premillennialism, and, and it's dispensational in that it believes that God has divided his way of dealing with people into different eras, and the eras are, are set apart from each other, but the one constant is Israel means national Israel, and the church means the church of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the two will never be together. They're two separate tracks in God's plan of salvation. And then the second principle was that you interpret all of the prophecies of Revelation literally. So that if it says a thousand years reign on earth, it must mean a thousand year reign on earth. And so if taking those two principles of literal interpretation and the difference between Israel and the church, you end up with the whole left behind picture. And so those are the, the two basic, there are three, three views, but really it's two basic views. The view that says Jesus is reigning in heaven now, and the view that says Jesus will come back and reign on earth for a thousand years. It's interesting because all millennial, a millennial, is almost like saying there is no millennial, millennium, right, no right. millennium. But, but there is. We, it's not a denial of that, but we would see it as, like you just said, and I haven't quite heard it put that way before, but the thousand-year reign is happening now or it will still yet to come. Is that, is that, is that is Well, that it's, the, it would be accurate to say that from the beginning, 
the view is Jesus has triumphed over Satan through his death and resurrection, and since his ascension, he rules from heaven. And he will come, uh, his rule will be uh, made permanent on, among us when, uh, after the judgment, when he separates the sheep from the goats. But there's no intervening earthly mixture of, of, of redeemed, resurrected people and unredeemed natural bodies, you know, walking around on earth the way the premillennialists uh, view it. And uh, we would say that the whole... It, the other thing they do is that they argue that in Revelation 19, you have the return of Christ. Then in Revelation 20, you have the, this mention of the millennium. And then later on, in verse 8 and following, you've got this final battle. And it's kind of hard to understand uh, why you get this millennium separating the return of Christ and this the return of Christ. And so we would say that those verses in chapter 20 recapitulate or restate what happens in chapter 19 from a different point of view, and they're not meant to be successive in time. It's not that chapter 20 comes after the events of chapter 19. It's that chapter 20 is, is giving another picture of what chapter 19 is talking about. You get these spirals in Revelation where you have, you have trumpets and bowls and seals, and it's not like these are, are successive periods of history. It's each, each series is recapitulating the previous one, and they all end with the second coming. So the seals end with the second coming, the trumpets end with the second coming, the bowls end with the second coming. They're just, it's a poetic way of describing the, the time between the first coming and the second coming, you know, you know, in different images. It's like that movie that came out a few years ago. I wish I could remember the name of it, but it, it, ha it had a story, and what you realize is it's being told by six different people. It's the same event, and six pe different people are giving their take on that story. And then at the end of the movie, you realize it was just one story seen six different ways. Well, Revelation is giving us different, you know, ways of stating that Jesus is coming back to uh, raise the dead, judge the nations, and make all things new. And then you get that marvelous climax that you that you read in chapters 21 and 22, where it kind of it 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 moves from from prose to poetry and it just sings. The yeah, kingdom absolutely. of this world is going to become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. All we can say is amen to that, that's for sure. Uh, and so one of the words that are commonly used, and I remember seeing this actually not that, not that long ago, you'd be driving along the road and and in front of you there'll be a bumper sticker and it will say, in case of rapture, this car will no longer have a driver. Um, Pastor, can you tell us a little bit about that? We have about five, six minutes oh, left in okay. our time, but I want to be able to address this. So okay. what, what do some people speak about the rapture? Okay, again, this comes, uh, the people that promoted this view, first of all, started by separating words. Like, for instance, uh, Matthew has a preference for stating the kingdom of God one way, and Mark and Luke have a preference for the other way. Is it the kingdom of God or is it the kingdom of heaven? And they argued that those were two different things. And you have the reference to the, in Matthew, the separation of the sheep and the goats. In Revelation, you have a great white throne judgment. 
and they're told and we're and the people that do this separating say those are two different things and in the new testament it talks about the coming of jesus christ and it talks about his appearing and they argued those are two different things so when it talks in first thessalonians about jesus coming in the air and us going up to meet him they say oh well that must be different from his coming to raise the dead judge the nations and make all things new that must be a secret coming where he comes and he takes all true believers to heaven and so if you happen to be in an airplane and the pilot's a christian good luck because you might crash because uh you know he's just going to disappear out of his clothes and uh and all you're going to have left are his clothes in the in the pilot seat and if you're riding in a bus and the bus driver is a Christian and the rapture happens, well, good luck because your bus is going to crash. And so this idea is that all true Christians are going to disappear. And what's going to come after that is a seven-year period of great tribulation, which is going to see the rise of an antichrist. And it's going to be hell on earth. Terrible things are going to happen. A third of the earth is going to be in famine a third of the earth is going to be incinerated you're going to have uh, meteors falling from the sky you're going to have uh, all kinds of of terror visited upon the people who did not accept the gospel of jesus christ so all these non-believers are going to be subjected to seven years of unrelenting unremitting horror and even in that time some people are supposedly going to become Christians and they'll fight against this Antichrist and then when Jesus returns at the end of the seven years to set up his millennial kingdom uh, they will move into the millennium and he will judge those uh, who are still alive at the end of the tribulation uh, and that's what you know Matthew was referring to so they, they it, it comes from making distinctions between synonyms in Scripture basically like the the coming and the appearing and the and the kingdom of god and the kingdom of heaven and if you're going to split hairs like that and try to make it all make sense you end up with multiple you know kinds of scenarios that are very complicated that's why the prophecy charts you can look them you can google uh, uh the book of revelation or google uh god's dispensational prophetic plan and it is just the most elaborate flow charts you've ever seen of things that are going to happen. I would encourage our listeners with only a few minutes left in our time to do your research. One in particular that I would look for you to have to look up is Google the CTCR document on the Left Behind series. So CTCR uh, document on the Left Behind series. This is our our uh, uh, commission and constitution and theological matters in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I didn't say that right, excuse me. Report of the Commission of Theology and Church Relations of the LCMS, I said that completely wrong, is uh, to look up that document because it addresses absolutely everything that Pastor McFadden has said and everything we've been covering today. Now, Pastor, with about a minute and a half left in our time, so much confusion can be surrounding this. How would you encourage our listeners as we look at the, the end times, the Christ's return for judgment, encourage them in Christ as we continue to move forward? Well, I, I would encourage people to avoid <laughs> 
getting too deep in the weeds of some of these prophecy books because I think they're unreliable and I think they sow seeds of confusion. They also create a, a kind of a two-tiered uh, haves and have-nots. You know, well, I have the real insight into the second coming and you just don't believe in the Bible like I do. And I would encourage people to stick to, um, to what the scripture says and to pick up some of the things like that article that you referenced that will be a reliable guide to explain why we believe what we believe and, and why it is uh, a sound approach to Scripture, why it is more literal than the other side's view. It Pastor takes Dennis Scripture McF more seriously. Excuse me. Pastor Dennis McFadden of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, clearly confessing the truth of Christ's return for judgment. Pastor McFadden, thank you for being our guest. Thank you. It was good being with you. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.